Hello and welcome to the Motown Philly Podcast. I am Tim Golden and this is Jason Hall. And Jason Hall is from Detroit, better known as Motown. I am from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Philly, home of the hopefully, fingers crossed, those two soon-to-be World Series champion Philadelphia Phillies and possibly, optimistically speaking, Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I got my fingers crossed. Give me a great day. Hope springs eternal. (laughs) Listen, before we move on, you brought up a good point. What's the series right now with Philly um, in the world? The World Series? series. It, It hasn't started yet. It starts tomorrow. Tells you how much I know. Me and tomorrow. So we will we will see. It is great to be with you today for this episode eleven of the Motown Philly Podcast. Jason, can you believe eleven? We are eleven episodes in. I cannot. This thing is really becoming like breathing. That's like you asking me, yo, do you do you know that you take you've taken a thousand breaths today? Nah, because it's just what it's just what we do. It's just what we do, do, y'all. We love this thing, and we glad. Listen, we get feedback from our friends, our family, our relatives, our community, and we are loving the fact that first of all, y'all tell us about this. So as y'all tell us, get back, get on your platforms, and tell your platforms like us. uh, Continue to give us uh, those good ratings, and of course, if we if we add value, give us good ratings. Um, and, um, share, share, please share what we're doing and write reviews. So we are loving it. One of the principles we espouse here at the Motown Philly podcast is that communication is not one-sided, which means it's not just about what we say, it's about what you hear. And if you're not listening, you're not hearing and Jason and I might as well be talking to a wall. So we are thankful that Mm -hmm. you are taking time out to listen to us, that you are making us a part of your day as you Mm -hmm. run your errands, as you do your daily routine. If you're listening in your car or on your phone, Jason and I are just beyond grateful that you have taken the time and given us the privilege of being a small part of your lives as you listen and go about your daily activities. So again, Thank you so much. And we could not do this without you. And we just want to take that time to recognize that. So, Jason, here we go. Episode 11. And this is going to be a good one. Let's do it. This is going to be a good episode. It's going Mm -hmm. to be a little different from our other episodes because we talked about emotional intelligence. We did a series on that. We talked about belonging. We did a series on that. But today we want to share with you some of our own private communications that have happened. And I guess today's episode, if we were going to put it in words, it would be about interpretation and communication. How does interpretation affect our communication with one another? Mm -hmm. And just as a philosophical point Mm -hmm. in the background. I am a philosopher. I do have a PhD in philosophy. I teach philosophy, so I sort of can't get away from that. 
And this is a good opportunity to share with you the insights of an ancient Greek philosopher named Protagoras. Protagoras. Mm -hmm. And Protagoras is famous for his statement, it's translated from Greek into Latin as homo mensura. And homo mensura from Latin means man is the measure. Okay. It, what he means is that human beings are the measure of things that are and things that aren't. We don't get our values from transcendent sources like God, according to Pro, or the gods, according to Protagoras. Mm -hmm. Our values come from our social relationships. Our values come from our interpretations of the world. In other words, they come from within us rather than outside of us. They're imminent rather than transcendent. Mm -hmm. And one of the insights of Protagoras is, Jason, he says that two people can look at the same object and one can say it's black, the other can say it's white, and both of them can be correct. Now, you're listening and you're thinking, well, how can this be? This is not possible. Before you go too far down that road, think of how many different interpretations there are of the Bible. Mm -hmm. People are reading the same book and wow. some say it's black, some say it's white. Think about how many different interpretations there are of the Constitution. Some say it's black, some say it's white. There are nine lawyers in Washington on the Supreme Court, and we can't, they can't seem to agree on much of anything, but they are all reading the same document. And Jason and I had an experience recently in which we listened to the same thing mm -hmm. and came away with very different communicative responses that were informed not so much by what was said, but by what each of us heard. And so, Jason, I'm going to turn it over to you to see if you can't set this up further and share with our listeners what it is that we heard. And then you can lead us into the dialogue. I believe you and I had this dialogue by text message. Right. You can lead us into it and then we can sort of open up and talk a little bit about how we actually felt about what you're about to share with our listeners. OK, a couple of things. Uh, Tim started off this setup to this. Uh, this it was a soft flex, and Tim never flexes flexes at all. Him being a philosopher and a lawyer is often understated. But as you guys have followed us over the past ten episodes, when you hear him speak, that's the place he speaks from. Now, me being his good friend and brother, I am not a philosopher. I'm someone who had a background in, in psychology and in Spanish, and I ended up becoming a linguist or at least a, a, 
a linguist of disorders, um, speech language pathologist, right? But as Tim talks his, that's what I want to say. Often I also want to interrupt him because I want to act as if I'm, we're not on this podcast and we just have this banter that, that just really goes uh, back and forth. And, but we have to be respectful and not talk over each other. But as Tim lets you guys know, him being the philosopher, I love the way Tim speaks or thinks. Of course, I love the way he speaks because he's also part of my team as uh, the speaker's mechanic team in my coaching. That's just a, that's a light flex too. But listen, more, more importantly, I like the way Tim thinks because what he does is he takes his philosophy mindset and then he somehow translates it for, for practical living and th- and practical thought in today's day. So there's just like this interpretation that he does. That's beautiful. And we off, this is where a lot of our conversations come from. So we're, we're just, we're hoping in this episode to pull back the curtain, if you will, and, and kind of be that fly on the wall to listen to some of our, you know, the deconstructing of some of our thoughts and conversations that are happening based on what's happening in culture. And Tim, what he just did is what he often does in our just daily conversations, and we chop it up so hard. So we want to kind of, we want to show y'all a glimpse of that. We can't totally reduplicate that, but this is a good topic because he's, as he so eloquently said, we, Tim and I are not just friends because we're, because we share a lot of commonalities. So I sent Tim, here's a setup, here's a setup, guys. I, if you don't know, let me let you know, Trevor, I'm a f- big fan of Trevor Noah. Um, Trevor Noah is the host of The Daily Show. It's a com- comedic show where that talks about current events and daily news. And I love Trevor Noah for many reasons. Um, But more specifically, since I am a communication skills coach, I look at Trevor Noah and how he communicates within the skill level and how he communicates. So I muse over him and I, I, I watch him and I study him and I observe him, but not just how he does it, but also he also has time to have just real pensive thought. And he has those out loud. And I caught one, I saw one and I sent it to Tim and this is what he said. And we're going to have a conversation about that. So listen to, listen to Trevor about this particular thought. And then we're going to talk about it. We both saw this, saw this totally differently. And this is what we're here to share. You see this thing today. um, I think it was, it was, trending for a moment on Twitter about like the right to sex. Did you see this, did anyone? Did you see this? It was one of the wildest conversations people were having. And I think part of it came down to um, bad branding or whatever, but no, but, it, but it, it, never, it never talks about two things. One, very seldom in society do we talk about how the expectation of sex was often set by a society controlled by men and women were just subject to it. You know, and as that has changed, you would hope that now the dynamics would change. But 
it also it also makes it seem so one dimensional. They go like women, uh, you know, men aren't having the sex that they want to have or wish to have. And I, I go like, how much sex do they think they're supposed to have? Let's start there. <laughs> Secondly, like, do they think they're entitled to the sex? And third, and most importantly for me, and I really feel like we don't speak about this enough, is people don't realize how often men are experiencing a lack of intimacy. And the only place that they can experience that intimacy is through sex. We've created a society where men are so afraid to be vulnerable with each other, to be, you know, sensitive with each other, to care for each other, to love each other. You know, even saying that as a guy, you always have to change and be like, you can't just say, I love you. You have to be like, I love you, dog. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, gotta, you, you gotta throw it like you can't just say it. And, and it's interesting because that, that is where I do feel women have done a much better job of being there intimately for each other. Not sexually, but intimately. And I think we take for granted how much in society men who say sex is the thing they're not getting are actually struggling with a lack of companionship, of intimacy, of being in a space with a person where, they, where they're sharing, you know, everything from serotonin to endorphins to what, to what humans need to feel, you know? And, and I, I, I hope we can change that conversation just a little bit more. All right. It could go a little bit longer. And... That's the gist of it is actually it, it goes for about a total of five minutes. So listening to that, I thought, you know, Trevor talks about being expressive, being expressive about intimacy, being expressive about um, understanding your level of vulnerability. If you guys have been listening to this podcast to this point. You understand that being expressive. That's who we are for this for this particular podcast. And that's kind of who Tim and I are to our core, uh, understanding uh, ourselves and how it relates to being vulnerable and having the ability to have conversations about how we are as men in relation to other people and specifically for Trevor's point, women. And I thought it was an, a neat not more than neat, a uh, 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 profound, that's better, uh, take from somebody who I thought is very, is very pensive and very skilled at, as to how he communicated. And I thought he was communicating that really well. And I also thought that he saw men where they are, like, and I, I speak in generalities, he saw men in where we are where where they are as far as like having to understand the ability to say hey it's not it's not sex that i crave it's actual intimacy and i think both are important but he, what he what i heard him saying is you missed some of that he couched this whole conversation is men men in general have cast a wide cultural um, um, past, if you will, as to what sex, sexuality, and the roles of sex should be. And what Trevor was trying to say, that we have graduated now to a place where men should, should not take the idea that, hey, we just want sex, we have now sh and should have now learned the idea of saying as much as we might want sex, 
it's more of an idea of saying, I don't just want sex. I want intimacy. And what Trevor, what to me was saying, women are good or better seemingly able to express the idea of intimacy and not, and it, and it not being about physical things and sexual or, and or sexual things. It's more intimacy as far as relationship, emotions, connection. And what Trevor was saying, he believes that we should, and we probably could be now closer than ever as men to start having new and better conversations, not so much as, hey, all I want is sex. It was more to the point of, hey, I, sex is not only the only thing I want. I also desire and crave intimacy. I want to, I want to connect with you more than just physically. So I'll pause it right there as far as my take. And I thought that was a really good take. So that's what I clearly got from that. Clearly got from that. And I connected with Tim later on that day. It's like, yo, you saw this clip? Did you did you listen to it? Did you hear it? And he came, go for it, go for it, Tim. Tell tell him, tell him what you got out of that. Cause it was not what I got out of it. So Jason and I are 180 degrees apart on this one. Because my first reaction when I watched the clip was that Trevor Noah was being terribly irresponsible in relating a secondhand account of a social media conversation that was likely a second and third hand account of a claim that someone made in that conversation about men generally, quote unquote, having a right to sex. So my initial reaction was anger mm -hmm. at how terribly irresponsible I thought it was for someone who is as accomplished a communicator as Trevor Noah. And by the way, as a footnote to all of this, the one thing that Jason and I do agree on as it relates to this subject matter is Trevor Noah's talent. I have no doubt that he's talented and my criticisms of him are not personal. They have more to do with a certain social, political, and cultural space that I think he occupies, which I think is, is, is very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'll come to that in a moment. So my initial reaction is, is anger because I thought as a, as a communicator, you have an ethical responsibility. Jason and I have talked about that recently. Mm -hmm. As a communicator, you have an ethical responsibility to be competent with what you are discussing. And although he does make a point about the difference between intimacy and sex, I agree with him there. He does so in the context of a second and third hand social media conversation that lacked any of the nuance necessary to give that conversation real meaning. For starters, he is talking at a very abstract level about men and women. This is something that is a problem in gender discussions generally 
because all men are not all men. Jason and I are black men and black men have a very different history, a very different tradition, a very different social and political status than men generally. Yet what we tend to do in our contemporary discussions of gender is lump all men together. Mm. And the fact that he was not doing that is what to me made his remarks so irresponsible. As if that were not bad enough, he comes to the point where he misappropriates or appropriates, I, yeah, he, he appropriates, or I should say misappropriates, the African-American idiom and says, instead of saying, oh, I love you, dog, you just say, I love you. And this coming from someone from another country on a major platform such as his, Comedy Central, a, a, a major network, uh, The Daily Show, a, a major comedy show, a major platform, for someone who is not African-American to come into an American space and on an American platform and misappropriate the African-American idiom in ways that suggest that Black men are dysfunctional because they don't understand the difference between intimacy and sex, to me, was the height of arrogance. And I frankly had, I listened to the entire clip several times and about the third time through, I had to stop listening to it because my, I was just seething. And in fact, before I responded to Jason's message, I had to take a couple deep breaths and I did respond, but I did not respond. I responded in a way that indicated just how different my interpretation of what was said was from what Jason had experienced. And, and let so, me let me say this. Let me say this. Keep that point. Even based on what he just said, he 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 was Tim was like, yo, I I had to temper what I text Jason and what my and so that was him. So what he texted me, I thought was highly charged and I felt the emo emotion behind it and his disgust. So he he actually had to filter what he texted me. And I thought what he what he texted me was pretty not unfiltered, but it was pretty it was pretty it was a raw it was a raw response and unexpected response from Tim, too. And he and and that was filtered. So, wow. And, and his discussion, Trevor Noah's whole discussion about sex and sexuality in the context of these highly abstract, unnuanced discussions of males and females is just is to me is so problematic because especially in the United States, black males have a certain history of being cast as hypersexual. And the whole the whole discussion for the whole commentary from Trevor Noah came off as to me as a sort of false moralizing that was almost shaming uh, shaming black men by not paying attention to their uniqueness, to their place in American history, and all of this coming from someone 
who would phenotypically be described as black in the United States, but who is not from the United States and talking about black men with his accent, et cetera, to me, doesn't say anything about Trevor Noah necessarily as a person, but as a social, political, and cultural figure, he is well disposed and well situated to lecture Black men in the United States about how they need to be more vulnerable. And this sort of moralizing, to me, just drove me crazy. And I just thought, I just think, Again, not him personally, but he he is he is so there are some people who transcend themselves. And Trevor Noah as a cultural figure and as a social figure is bigger than just Trevor Noah the person. So my commentary is not about him as a person. I don't know him. I'm sure he's a nice person. He may even be a good guy. But at some point, we become so popularized in the culture to the point that our identity gets away from us and has a life of its own. And that's the space where he is. And I think network executives know that. And I think messages are crafted in certain ways to take advantage, not so much of Trevor Noah, but to take advantage of Trevor Noah's transcendent social, political, and cultural soul, which is independent of him. And that situation of his of his social, political, and cultural soul being used in some ways to do what I thought was falsely moralized on on men, especially black men. Uh, I had a very different interpretation of the same remarks from Jason. So here we are, Jason, back to Protagoras. You say it's black, I say it's white. We're both right. Hmm. Wow, wow, just wow. Yeah, you guys can see from Tim's rebuttal or commentary or remarks about um, the same thing that we just talked discussed in in Trevor's in Trevor's own commentary about sex and, and and vulnerability and how men should respond to that. As you can see, Tim, I mean, one of the reasons why Tim is my friend is because he's really smart and they say you should hang around really smart people <laughs> and have it and have it do its best rub, to rub off on you my point my other point is that it is tim really dove into the nuances and of what trevor was trying what trevor was saying meaning that as in Tim and I had a, a masterclass with my, my students prior to hopping on this particular podcast. And we talked about, we talked about ethics. We talked about knowing your audience and from, from what Tim is saying, it's, it's understanding the platform that you on that you are on, especially if you're Trevor Noah, his platform is huge and it's amazing. And to have that type of conversation in a lot of ways is an intimate conversation that should be had with probably just males in a closed space. And I think Tim is alluding to that. And for him to, to, for Trevor to couch what he was talking about with really broad strokes, right, Tim? Mm -hmm. And, and, yeah. 
and to speak about it as in depth as he did and say some of the things that he did and how he said the things that he did, um, it really, you know, as we can see, rubbed him the wrong way when me, on the other hand, I was I I was definitely listening to what Trevor was saying in its in its very broad stroke um, delivery. And I glean and what I gleaned from it was something in my mind, I thought was a generality. And what Tim is, I believe what Tim is bringing to the forefront, that that type of conversation is not is sitting simply on and that type of conversation on that particular scale or platform shouldn't be left to generalities especially if you're going to speak about it and use certain epithets and to you know broad stroke all men is 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 unfair at the least is that correct i think so jason yeah i think that's that was what that certainly was what got under my skin so to speak, right? That's what disturbed me about it. And again, if I could just go back and, and make this point, I, I agree with a lot of the things Trevor Noah said. They're, they're for sure, there is certainly a difference between sex and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And there is certainly a, a sense in which uh, Men, in particular, black men, are hypersexualized. There's all sorts of mythological constructions of black masculinity, such as the 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 buck and that label a, a big brawny black man it becomes a stereotype of a big brawny black man with an uncontrollable sexual desire, right? And a lot of those myths are appropriated and reappropriated in contemporary discussions of race and gender in ways that frankly are quite dangerous, right? Because every, every, every man, uh, a man may, it, it may not be driven by sex, right? It is, it is almost inconceivable in certain cultural spaces today that a man in particular, a black man would have the temerity to walk away from sex without making himself vulnerable to being called homosexual mm. or gay. Mm-hmm. It is it is almost as though because you are male, you must want sex. And where does that idea come from? In particular, as it applies to black men. Where does the idea of hypersexuality come from such that Tony Braxton's sister, I think it was Tamar, said, was quoted in an interview saying a few years ago that if her, if her man didn't want to have sex from you, the blankety blank must be gay. Mm. And, and I'm thinking to myself, really? Does he have to be gay? Or is, is it that he may have an emotional disposition towards you that's just tired of you, mm. that just don't want to be bothered with you in the moment? Right. And it's a radical idea to impute thoughts, feelings, 
and emotions to a man such that they would factor into his calculus as to whether or not he could even achieve sexual arousal with a woman with whom he does not feel safe mm. emotionally. And, and if you're not going to pay attention to that kind of cultural dynamic and to that kind of nuance, for me, it was just irresponsible to plunge in headlong into that conversation. Because the fact of the matter is, Jason, contrary to popular belief, men do have thoughts, feelings, and emotions. A man may want to, a man might shy away from or be drawn to a woman for reasons other than physical pleasure. I might be drawn to a woman because I genuinely feel safe with her. The same in a, in, in a similar way to that a woman may be drawn to me because she feels safe with me. I'm talking about safe emotionally. I'm talking right. about an intimacy. So Trevor Noah is not wrong about that. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I think he's spot on about the difference between intimacy and sex. The problem is that that jewel is buried deep beneath a morass of, of unsubstantiated claims, unnuanced assertions that just make it almost impossible to get to the one gem that you want. Or by the time you get to it, there's, there's so much other stuff on you that you can't really appreciate the gem that you have in your hand. Yeah. Tim and I often, well, we have often talked about where the hypersexualized black man came from. Like, I don't think we touched about it. And it's not to assume that everyone who's listening to this truly understands that, that, that ideation, that myth, or not myth, but that particular portrayal of the black man and where it comes from. Tim, talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the seat of that and how that has, you know, moved forward to this day and age currently. Well, yeah, so good, Jason. Thanks for, for asking me to do that. So I think if we go back, at least in the United States, and it's important for us to pay attention to this, uh, chattel slavery in the United States was an institution that was predicated on myths about black bodies, about what they were good for, about what they signified, about how they could be used, about how they could be used for labor and treated as animals, but how minds could be ignored. And then after emancipation in 1863, you now had an entire group of people who were once slaves that had no marketable skills that were freed and the white plantation owners had to convince white overseers that these newly freed black slaves were gonna take all their jobs, that they were going to take over their jobs and that black men, these black bucks were now off the plantation. The idle mind is the devil's workshop. They don't have anything to do. They don't have anywhere to go. And so we have to use law as a means of social control and pass black codes that are going to keep these, these black men in prison. At the same time, black men were hypersexualized and styled as threats 
to rape white women and have sex with them and sort of dilute the white race and ruin it, black women were simultaneously viewed by whites, particularly white men, as being in a state of perpetual consent because their bodies were so voluptuous. And so while black men were sexually repulsive, black women were stereotypically sexually desired and the sexual violence comes in both ways at both black men and women. And mm -hmm. so these stereotypes very sadly played out in what's called first wave feminism. So first wave feminism in the United States has to do with the suffrage movement. And the, the, that is the movement to get women the right to vote. Mm -hmm. It's no secret, Jason, that the 15th Amendment was supposed to guarantee African-Americans the right to vote in 1870. Mm -hmm. And yet it wasn't until 1965, 95 years later, that African-Americans actually had their right to vote secured under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm -hmm. In between 1870 and 1965, you have 1920 and the passage of the 19th Amendment to guarantee women the right to vote. But black women were not guaranteed the right to vote. That right to vote was guaranteed to white women who for 50 years had fought for political solidarity with white men and who made conscious political decisions. I'm talking about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony they decided that they were going to seek the right to vote over and above black people, especially black men. And so what did they do? They appropriated all of the racist, hypersexualized stereotypes about black men. And they said black men are not fit to vote because they're ignorant, because they're sambos, because they can't stop thinking about sex long enough to make a competent political decision because they're given to alcohol, they're given to the dance hall, they're given to all these things and amusements for a good time, but they're not intelligent enough to be able to vote. So we, as cultured white women, ought to have the right to vote before they get the right to vote. And lo and behold, it took a little while, but white women got to vote in 1920. Black people didn't get the right to vote until 1965. I just remind our listeners that Medgar Evers was shot dead in his driveway in Mississippi in 1963 for registering black people to vote. And in 2013, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was gutted and essentially black people in America are now living in a pre-1965 world in which their right to vote no longer has any protection under federal law. African-Americans have had the right to vote protected in federal law for a grand total of 48 years in American history. And so the mythopoetic black buck, the hypersexual black man has been around for a long time and it was especially effective in the post reconstruction era to prevent black men from achieving any sort of meaningful political gains in terms of suffrage and it's fascinating that the perpetrators of this myth and the people who propagated this myth were people who supported abolition, which goes to show you that just because you supported the abolition of slavery politically does not mean that you were opposed to slavery morally. There was a, was it Sojourner Truth? Sojourner Truth, yes. 
tell us what most people don't really understand about her role um, in this whole movement of uh, women's suffrage and their wanting to to gain the right to vote and the feminist act. Uh, like you brought out something to me that kind of coincides and I was with what we're talking about now. And I was just kind of taken aback because I didn't know that particular bit of information. Well, so in, in the, during the, the suffrage movement, the, the suffragettes, white women, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony and the like, they were trying to get women the right to vote and they were going up out using a lot of rhetoric that was essentially demonizing black men in order to prevent black men from getting the franchise, right? Mm -hmm. So there was lots of talk about how, again, black men were too given over to amusements, they were too given over to sex, they were, they were essentially cr criminals in nature. Mm -hmm. And Sojourner Truth, in, I don't know if it was an attempt to gain solidarity with political solidarity with white women, but Sojourner Truth seized upon some of those stereotypes about the men in her own community and came out and said things, said something to the effect. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the quote is, is you can find the quote online. She is talking about how important it is that black men don't get the right to vote because if black men get the right to vote, they're going to turn around and do the same thing to black women that white men did to them. Essentially, that's what she says. And never mind the fact that in contemporary discussions of race and gender, there has been a lot of empirical studies that show that contrary to popular belief, belief based in these stereotypes about Black men, that Black men tend to be the most egalitarian in their view of women Mm -hmm. than almost any other male, racial, or ethnic group. Black women, black men tend to see black women more as partners. They see them more uh, as uh, sort of social and political equals. They take their voice seriously. And yet if we buy into the stereotypes, then if we, if we buy into the idea, and this is what bothered me about Trevor Noah, He's, he's talking about structures that were put in place by men, right? By what kind of men? Did black men have a part in putting structures in place? Or were black men abused by the same structures that black women were abused by? There's a wonderful book called Rethinking Rufus, The Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men. And when we think of slavery, we think of black women being raped, which is true. Mm -hmm. But we also think of things like coerced fatherhood for the sake of breeding that black men had to perform. Black men were told this is something that they had to do, mm -hmm. right, at peril of death. Because if you were a slave that didn't reproduce, it was hurting the economy because you weren't bringing the next generation of slaves, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just, there's just a lot that, that's not covered that can't be covered in a commentary on a comedy network mm. and and for me it's not that it's not that i think jason was wrong 
in his perception. Jason's perception is what his perception is. Right. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what Protagoras means when he says, you say it's black, I say it's white, and both of us can be right. Right? right. So this is this is where we find ourselves. It's fascinating yeah. to see the impact of interpretation on communication. Jason, your thoughts? I mean, you guys have lived um, through this recent internet for Fourier of the blue and black dress and other people seeing it as uh, gold or white. Tim, do you, do you know, I, I know it circled around on, on Instagram and I have to, and I'm, that's where I'm at most of the time. And it had to also circle around on, on Facebook as well. It's the, the old, blue and it might be it's probably older than what i'm actually thinking it's not in the last couple of years it's probably been around at least maybe five years where this one dress was pre- was presented through picture and to a lot of people the dress literally looked black and blue and i promise you and y'all know it who are listening y'all saw that same dress some people out there and they said that's a gold and white dress and let me just be honest, I'm of the blue, <laughs> the blue and the black camp. That dress looked a certain way to me and I couldn't for the life of me see it the way someone else saw it. Interpretation is, is just is is something that is very fascinating when something is presented either through some visual stimulus or heard audibly uh we can say this about interpretation and i don't think we brought this up and i think this is important this is where we could dive deeper but being mindful of our time like i believe wholeheartedly that interpretation also has to do with one's experience of life and because of one's experience of life, we look through lenses differently, all of us. Um, you've heard of the proverbial rose-colored lenses. That's when one sees something when it's totally not good or healthy or right, and they still happen to see something as something positive or something that gives value or something that is somehow glorified in one's eyes. But for take off the rose-colored glasses, all of us walk with a our own set of lenses that we view life through. That we when we listen to individuals, we hear something different. Uh, Tim and I both grew up in a church setting and it's been talked about that one sermon to a congregation can go out to each one of the congregants and say if it was a thousand or a hundred, it would go to these individual one sermon in a thousand or a hundred different ways. Like they would all interpret them differently if you really got to the nuances of what Tim is really talking about. Like, what did you glean? <laughs> what did you glean from that? Like, talk to me and express to me 
how that impacted you, what like you will get um, inevitably some some very new very nuances of what was given based on that individual's life experience, Tim. Jason, that is well put. A thousand congregants, a thousand interpretations. And this is not something that happens intentionally. (laughs) It literally just happens because you find your audience wherever they are, wherever they happen to be. They are where they are. Mm -hmm. And because they are where they are, what you say and what they hear are two different things. That's why I can't say anything bad about Trevor Noah as a person, but I can speak of his persona. I can speak of his social soul, his cultural soul, his political Mm -hmm. soul, but that's different from his personal one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, we have this this gap, this communication mm-hmm. gap. Right. And what we what we wanted, the meaning we want to convey is not necessarily the meaning that people hear or to put it in in more, I guess, laid back parlance. What we put down is not necessarily what folk pick up. Mm-hmm. And and folks pick up different things. So I, I want to just I want to make this point here. Because you 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 you're on to something, Jason. Yeah, a yeah, thousand yeah. a thousand different congregants to one sermon, a thousand different interpretations. It makes me think of the story in Scripture in the Book of Acts, where it says that people heard the disciples in their own tongue. They heard them in mm-hmm. their own language. Right which is fascinating to me because what would happen if we began thinking in tongues? What would happen? Unpack that, please. What would happen happen if in the context of every communicative endeavor, we approached it with an awareness of interpretation and experience based on what is said. What if everybody in the congregation anticipated hearing a thousand different things based on their own experience? How would that change the mode of communication among the people who heard what they heard? I suspect that there would be a radical shift in the approach to conversations because no one would be coming to the conversation with a singularly correct, this is what he said and this is what he meant. Therefore, opening all kinds of spaces to actually understand one another. And which will cause growth and learning right which would evolve cause people to evolve and connect and to to create just like this conversation it it totally went where i didn't think it was gonna go and i appreciate you for that i just want to say i appreciate you for that (laughs) bro that is so 
what you just said, I'm still first. I'm still processing it. One, I'm still wrapping my head around that. Imagine the approach. This was this is. Let me let me translate what Tim. Imagine the approach. If everyone sat and walked away from an experience with a collective mindset, knowing that everybody didn't hear the same singular message. That's that's profound. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. I, I, I mean, if you think about it, we it, that is thinking in tongues. To, to think in tongues is to have an understanding that there are different ways that people see the world based on their experiences, wow. and it contributes to a level of open-mindedness that encourages, guess what? communication, connection, and community. Now, now, check, go ahead. Let me, let me interject. Now, preface that with the, the age and day in which we live in. On the internet, there are silos. There are, in, there are echo chambers. There are political strongholds and parties that, that have this collective imbalanced, unhealthy ideology, if you will, because every, they, everyone should be thinking the same. It's either left or right. It's, e- it's either black or white. It's not an open, conscious thought process of saying everyone is receiving this differently. Let's come together with an open mindset and heart to 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 find commonality when you start looking for commonalities as opposed to what is separate things i think life becomes better so here's you and i looking let's look for commonalities both of us agree trevor noah is a gifted communicator right both of us agree he's extremely talented yes both of us agree he's he's professionally and communicatively worthy of the platform that he has. Yes. Both of us agree that there's a difference between sex and intimacy, right? Yes. And so when we speak of thinking in tongues, by the way, when you share this episode, episode 11 of Motown Philly, when you share it on social media, share it with two hashtags, hashtag Motown Philly mm-hmm. and hashtag thinking in tongues. Thank because you. thinking in tongues is about managing our expectations in the context of the outcome of a communication so that we allow, we build community by allowing the others to pick up things from the speech or from the the message that are different from the things we picked up. And then we can stand side by side and look at the differences and appreciate one another as entire persons rather than expecting everybody to have a singular mindset based on hearing a certain message or or claim that's made. Powerful, very powerful. And it's the openness of the mindset that one has to learn to create that gives credence to someone else's experience. And that is amazing. Yes, that's exactly right, Jason. We we have to, it is almost as though before any communicative encounter, 
we have to be self-aware enough if we are speaking to if we are whether we are speaking or hearing to say to ourselves people are not going to hear the same thing that I am saying. There will be someone who hears something that I did not intend to say. <laughs> and there will be some, if I'm in the audience, there will be someone who heard something that I did not hear. Mm -hmm. And instead of staying in our own little narrow-minded world, if we learn to think in tongues, we can now manage expectations in a way that breaks down barriers and prevents the building of community so that now avenues are open, minds are open, and people can actually understand one another as, as fully formed human beings rather than as some mythological atomic self off alone that just gets a message and every and expects everybody else to interpret it the exact same way. Tim, communication is beautiful. And we have, I believe, and this is not a flex, but I believe we've, we've helped to put another hue, another, another, Happens like we've put some like you if you're listening to this you have to go talk to other people about this like and you have to also i shouldn't say you have to that i recommend i suggest let me be better with how i'm i want you to hear this as best as possible how it lands on you so i need to do my part as a communicator i suggest i recommend that you hold this and process it and then and try to understand what we are saying in the realms of let me consider not just the way I'm interpreting or hearing this based on my own experience, but let me give space for the other person, especially when we come in contact to have communication and just consider what they're saying based on their human experience. And if we then understand that and share it with that same ideology and whom we want to share this podcast with, I think the world gets better, bro. The world gets better, bro. Jason, I want to take everything you just said, which I agree with 1000%, uh -huh. and I want to apply it to the communication that you and I had back and forth about Trevor Noah. If, if we... If you really think about what happened between the differences in our interpretations, it is that Jason and I, two people who have a friendship, a relationship far beyond any interpretation of Trevor Noah, actually got to know one another better. Mm. Our relationship deepened mm -hmm. because of differences. Differences do not have to necessarily prevent community, rightly understood and rightly processed, differences can build community because if we learn to think in tongues, i.e. if we learn to manage our expectations and believe that everyone's not going to see everything the same way, mm -hmm. that actually exposes the layers and nuances of each individual to the point that the relationship 
rather than become estranged because of different interpretations, deepens because of different interpretations. And that's what we're all about here at Motown Philly. We're all about communication, connection, and community. And if we can see past the differences in our interpretation long enough to anticipate them, to expect them, to welcome them, Uh then that inevitably leads to an openness and welcomeness to others that can help us know them better and that can use division to achieve multiplication. That the division that interpretation would bring to us is not a catalyst for estrangement, but instead is a catalyst for a greater depth of community, a greater breadth of community, and an all-around better world. And Jason, I think whatever improvements the world can, whatever improvement we can give to the world, we ought to give to it. So I'm all, I'm all in. I'm all in. I, I, we need to end this, but I want to add, yo, what you talked about is 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 a is a more grander or grandeur of awareness on a corporate level not just cor- i'm sorry not just awareness but vulnerability like awareness of vulnerability like awareness is one thing but to be open like consciously and with the mindset of the other the other's experience and then to have some type of dialogue about the experience there is like a there is a symbiotic transferring of openness which is vulnerableness which allows for connection oh man listen Jason, you got me ready to shout hallelujah, run around this room. Whoa, whoa. Folks, I don't know about you, but I think we stumbled on something here today at Motown Philly. Hopefully it's the type of thing that makes the world a better place because in the end, that's all we can do. We only travel past this way one time. We got a certain amount of years to live. And my hope is that somewhere along the way, the world will be a little bit better than it was when I wow. found it. And Jason, we have covered some ground today. Episode 11, interpretation and communication. Jason, tell folks where they can find you. Listen, you guys can find me mostly on Instagram at the speaker's mechanic. You can find me on LinkedIn at Jason Hall. You can find me on TikTok as Speaker's Mechanic. I'm the Speaker's Mechanic is who I am. And what I do, I'm a communication skills coach. One of the reasons why Tim and I geek out on having conversations about communication and how it connects to the fabric, the literal fabric of everything we do in life. Tim, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram at a good golden man. You can find me on Twitter at DRTJGoldenESQ. And three things in life are certain, death, taxes, and I'm the only black man in Walla Walla named Tim Golden. You can find me on Facebook at uh, Tim Golden uh, in, in Walla Walla, Washington. I'm from Philly, 
Jason is from Detroit. Together we are Motown Philly. If you're sharing this episode on social media, use the hashtag Motown Philly. And if you're sharing episode 11 in particular, I want you to use the hashtag Thinking in Tongues. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Let's do it. Jason, it's so good to be with you again. This is the highlight of my week. And to all our listeners, we, we love you. We thank you for your support. And we, you will hear us again next week on the Motown Philly Podcast. Y'all be good. Y'all be good. Love you guys. We out. <laughs>